you think of salvation as being saved from going to hell, or being saved from the guilt of sin, or being saved from judgment, if you think of it in a single concept like that, you're missing the greatness of salvation. If you think of salvation only being rescued from something, you are missing the greatness of salvation. This is Nita Erlene, and you are listening to the TRC Ministries podcast. In our last podcast, Tori talked about from what are we being saved. Today, Tori takes time to recap those main points and then introduces to what are we being saved. As believers, we understand we are being saved from sin and will go to heaven someday and have eternal life. But what really is the gospel? Tori intimates that it is much bigger than what we have been commonly taught. Here is Tori Bjorklund, president of TRC Ministries, continuing his teaching on What's So Great About Salvation, Part 2. Well, my agenda today, good morning everybody, is to summarize what we covered last week just because I didn't get to that at the end. And then I want to transition to the next question that we were asking about salvation. So last week we were talking about um, salvation from what? And, um, and I want intend to get to salvation to what today. So last week, as I said, we were talking about the first topic here, from what are we being saved? And so that was the topic, and we went through some different scriptures uh, about that. And then um, this is the way that I summarized that answer. And this is not a great summary, in, in, in my opinion. But I, I took all the scriptures and I tried to categorize them. That's probably a better term, categorize rather than summarize. Um, I tried to categorize them, and I ended up with these three saved from what? Our enemy, judgment, and loss of life. Now, what you see, though, is that they're so interconnected, it just isn't that linear. It's very difficult to categorize them. But the first one, I, what I put in the category of enemy is the ad, our adversary, Satan. That's what Satan means, by the way, is adversary. And, um, and so that's an obvious one to go under the category of being saved from enemies. Sin, though, is an enemy, and the Bible tells us, for example, the one that we looked at last week, when the angel appeared to Joseph, because he was about to put away uh, Mary, his wife-to-be, quietly, he said, don't be afraid to take her as your wife, for she is with child from the Holy Spirit, and then it goes on, the angel went on to say, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save the people from their sin. And death, by the way, is also represented as an enemy in Scripture. Um, and, and so I, I categorize those under enemy. The judgment is the second category. We saw how there is current judgment and future judgment, that there was salvation from judgment in the current sense. In, and then we also saw that there was also yet a wrath that was stored up from which we can also be saved. And I categorized that under judgment. But you could also see that, well, death is part of the current judgment, isn't it? And so, you know, it kind of could go in, in either one of those. And then loss of life, coming from Matthew 16, 25, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But that idea 
the corollary or the opposite of that was what salvation was about. But if you, what, forsake your life or give up your life for my sake, you will find it. That is a concept of salvation. But one thing that I wanted to mention also, and I think I brought this up last week, was living a life that is not really life at all is part of a loss of life. And that's really where, where I found myself and how I came to the Lord was I was in a life that was not life at all. So Jesus said, I came to give you life, right? And that life abundantly. And we have here 1 John 5, 12. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. But when we think about the loss of life and that being saved from the loss of life, that I really want you to realize, in my view, is a current thing. It's not a future thing. It's not, well, the, we will be saved from the second death, for example. Or we will be saved from the result of the fall in terms of ha- being mortal. Because we, we'll still be mortal. And having an eternal kind of a life does not take us away from mortality. It adds something to mortality. But what it does save us from is losing the purpose for this mortal life and losing the experience that we can have of being in God's life in this mortal life. And we'll talk more about that, I promise, next week. Okay, so those are the three categories and how I kind of categorize those ideas. But there's, there's three things I want you to take away from being saved from what, okay? So from, when we think about being saved from what, um, and really, but this is really, to me, the three main things I want you to think about throughout this conversation of salvation, okay? So the first one is, I love this, I, this, this word. Is this a new word, facile? Is that a new word for you? Yeah. Okay, salvation today is generally presented as a facile idea. That's a new word for me too, so why am I using it? Because... I was looking for synonyms, and this one went, I'm like, what is that word? I read the definition of it, I said, that is perfect. It's perfect. And so it, it can't carry connotations to you that I don't want it to carry because you've never <laughs> heard the word before, right? And so what, what facile means, uh, according to the dictionary, appearing neat and comprehensive only by ignoring the true complexities of an issue appearing neat and comprehensive only by ignoring the true complexities of an issue. It's basically oversimplifying something. You know, it's like the Beatles song, all you need is love. That's, that's a facile idea. And the bottom line is, the concept of salvation as presented in the scriptures, and this is what I wanted to get across, is actually a very complex idea and multifaceted. If you think of salvation as being saved from going to hell, or being saved from the guilt of sin, or being saved from judgment, if you think of it in a single concept like that, you're missing the greatness of salvation. If you think of salvation only 
being rescued from something, you are missing the greatness of salvation. There's different ways that we approach this concept of salvation as if it's simple. I think we should not approach the idea of salvation as a facile idea. I think we are doing nobody a favor by oversimplifying it. We, in fact, complicate it by trying to make it simplistic. Let me restate or requote what I read, a quote from uh, Willard a couple of weeks ago. You can't believe a blur or a blank. And you will only grab hold of that which you believe. You will only run with that which you have chosen to take as your belief system. And if we have a facile idea upon which our belief system is based, all of the difficulties that we encounter will trip us up. And we need to have a comprehensive view of salvation that addresses the issues that we will face when trying to live out our salvation. So I said salvation is multifaceted. That's really part of the same point, but I wanted to point it out specifically. We tend to use it as meaning sins forgiven and going to heaven someday. But the Bible uses it in a much broader sense. Salvation is larger, if you can say it, than being saved. So salvation is larger than the way we infer being saved. I think using the term saved has lost its value to us. So I would like to say that we should decide on a different term, something that doesn't carry those inferences and we're not going to do that right now. I don't know if you remember this. I, I remember kind of this transition from being saved to being born again. And it happened when Jimmy Carter used that publicly in a speech. It became the buzz in, in our culture. Born again, what is that? And, and people started talking about it. And then I remember being in eighth grade, and I remember people kind of making fun of it, asking each other, are you born again? It seemed like a, a strange thing to ask, but it went from saved to born again in our culture as being you know, more commonly used at that time, in, at least in the culture that I was hanging around in. I like that term. Born from above would be another, another good one. There's many, redeemed. I mean, there's lots of other phrases that we could use, but I'd like to have something that implies, when we say it, and infers to people that hear it, the idea of life, which we'll talk about later. The third point that I want to make in this whole series of salvation is that Jesus taught about salvation. Now, that is a radical thought to some people. I don't know if you realize that, and I'm not going to go into great depth about that at this point. Dave, you were raised in the tradition that had dispensationalism, right? And Schofield was very big on that, and there are others. And the idea of dispensationalism, generally, and I'm not going to go into what that idea is, but one of the things is that until that point when Jesus raised from the dead, everything was under a previous dispensation that had to do with the law. So Jesus, according to that teaching, was teaching the law and not teaching salvation. I reject that idea, but I want you to know that that often is presented as why 
we should not be teaching the teachings of Jesus. We should be teaching the teachings of the apostles because they were part of ushering in the new dispensation. I want to assert here, Jesus taught about salvation. And the question that I raise here is, does the word of Jesus fit into our gospel of salvation? And the reason I use the word of Jesus here is that, do you remember the point that I made about Paul and Silas when the jailer was about to kill himself? And they said, hey, don't, don't do that. Nobody's left. And he said, what am I going to do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? You and your household. And then they presented, and that's the very next verse there. What did they do? They shared the word of the Lord. Now, when we hear that, what do we infer? The Bible that we know about. And what do we think of? Well, Paul probably took them down the old Roman road. Roman road didn't exist at that point. In that sense, you know what I mean? He didn't have... Oh, you don't know what the Roman road is? Okay, yeah, Romans had not been written. But the old Roman road was a really good, well-laid-out steps of how to lead somebody to salvation. And it starts out, you know, in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It is all in Romans. That's why they call it the Roman road. And it's just a set of verses that, that walk them through this process. And, you know, we kind of think about that kind of thing because we think of the word of the Lord as the word of God, which we think of as a Bible. So what I, I would like to do is to do kind of a study of the gospel that was taught by the apostles. So if you go into, and I'll assign this more detail later, but if you went through the New Testament, and you looked up the word gospel, there's an interesting thing that you will see there. And you try to find out what was it that the apostles were teaching, you will find that it's basically what Jesus told them to teach. What did Jesus tell them to teach? Is to make disciples and to teach them what? To obey what? To obey my teachings, which included repentance. Absolutely. And I think that was an implied thing. But the point is, they were teaching the teachings of Jesus. And when it says that they presented him, that they gave him the word of the Lord, their Lord was Jesus. Over and over throughout the New Testament, throughout the epistles, the Lord is referenced as Jesus. Or they would say, the Lord Jesus, the Lord Christ over and over and over again. By the way, they were Jewish. They didn't generally use the Lord as a phrase for God. Primarily, they used that in this case, in the, the apostles, to reference Jesus Christ. So I believe that the idea of the gospel of Jesus Christ is really what I, I'm going to call a perfect storm of scriptural miscommunication. Okay? Do you remember the perfect storm? Naomi read that book. I saw the movie. What happened in the perfect storm? There were three storms that converged in one place. And so this phrase, the gospel of Jesus Christ, in my view, is a perfect storm of biblical miscommunication. There are three of those inferences that collide in our mind. This is where our culture has created for us a preconceived notion 
that leads us to a misconception. Now, you remember those, those were three inferences that trip us up. Our culture of Western Christian evangelicalism has created for us preconceived notions. We come at hearing what we're, what's being said by, in the Bible. We come at it hearing certain things because we already have a preconceived notion of what it means. However, that preconceived notion was established, what I am asserting here, was established with misunderstanding and therefore leads to a misconception. So that's why I say it's a perfect storm. All three of these forces of culture, of preconceived notions, and misconceptions, or my preferred word would be misapprehension, but combined. And so the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of the Lord, the gospel of our Lord, those are phrases that you'll find, the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of the Lord, the gospel of our Lord, was and is, my assertion, the good news that was proclaimed by Jesus. We have four books at the beginning of the New Testament today. What are they called? The Gospels? Tell me what's the first one. The Gospel according to Matthew. Why is it called the Gospel according to Matthew? The writer was Matthew, and he is presenting good news. That's what Gospel means, right? This is the Gospel. This is the good news according to Matthew. The Gospel of Luke? It's good news according to Luke. The Gospel of Jesus is good news about Jesus. No, it's the good news according to Jesus. This is where our culture sets this preconceived notion that when we say the gospel of Jesus, we insert an about that was never there. And it allows us to build misconceptions that Jesus did not teach salvation. I don't want to be critical. I mean, this is something that we've been doing for a long time in our Western Christian evangelical culture. I'm nervous about getting into areas that are potentially divisive. And so I want to make sure that we're doing this. We're, we're going to. Naturally, it's going to happen. I want to do this in a respectful way. I want to present what I think correct way, and, I, and I'll need to do some backing of it. You know, I need to give reasons for this. But I want you to keep these three things. And this one is probably the strongest one that I want to make is that Jesus taught salvation. And so if that's true, then our teaching on salvation should include what Jesus taught. Okay? And I want to challenge you to look through the scriptures about the gospel. So obviously the good news is going to include news about Jesus. I don't want to say that that the news about Jesus' death and resurrection, for example, is part of the gospel. But Jesus taught his death and resurrection. Do you remember what it said on the, to, when, he, when he was talking to those disciples on the road to Emmaus? He showed them in scripture why the Messiah must die and rise again. So it may include news about Jesus, but it is much more than that. It is the good news that Jesus proclaimed. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we need to learn what that was. We also should proclaim the good news that Jesus proclaimed. If you come away with this initial section of 
salvation, my teaching on salvation, I would be satisfied. It's not entirely what I want you to come away with, but enough. All right, moving on. To what are we being saved? That's the second question. So when we think of being saved, we talked about this, we often think of going to heaven, right? We don't think about being saved from hell, per se. We tend to think about going to heaven. Naturally, going to heaven would then imply being saved from going to hell, being saved to going to heaven. But we, we put it in those terms of the two primarily, and there's a reason for that. There is really two sides to any form of salvation. There's two sides to it. The rescue side, which is the from. We are being rescued from hell, for example. And that, so that is the from which we are being saved. And the delivery side. So we have pizza delivery today. So when we think about being delivered, deliverance, we, we, tend, we tend to actually think of being snatched from something. But actually, pizza delivery is not snatching the pizza from the oven. It's bringing the pizza to someplace. Okay? And this is really the, what I would call the delivery side of salvation. The rescue side snatches the pizza from the oven. The delivery side brings it to your door. Okay? So the delivery side is that to, to which we are being saved. The delivery aspect of salvation, in my opinion, is as important or possibly even more important than the rescue side. So in the midst of our distress... And I can think of my example in my life. The midst of my distress, we seem to only be thinking of rescue. And we say, when salvation comes, we are saved. Hallelujah. You know what that picture is? I wonder if the kids know what that picture is. Do you know what they're, what, what they're doing there? That is a fallout shelter. And they're listening to the radio there to find out what's happened. Hallelujah, we have been saved from the nuclear holocaust. So in the midst of our distress, we only think of this. When we breathe this sigh of relief, when we learn that we have been rescued from tragedy. However, it doesn't take long for us to ask the next natural question. Now what? We emerge from our fallout shelter to a desolation. This... Now what, I want to say to what, is the biggest question of salvation. This is my assertion. To what have we been delivered? We have this old saying that, that demonstrates the importance of this question. Out of the frying pan, into the, fire. into the fire. That is a perfect demonstration of how important it is that we focus on the to what? Because what is the implication of that old saying? Implication is you're no better off having been saved from the frying pan. And by the way, this is one of the things that people, when you talk to people who have backslidden, what you will hear is, well, after I got saved, my life got worse. To what we have been delivered is an important question. And in my experience, this is the primary, Marlene, deficiency in the typical explanation of salvation. I want to just talk about some very specific answers to the question of to what. Okay, so saved to what? Okay, I did a Google search on what is the gospel of salvation. Just Google search that. 
And I found several credible sites. Number two site, by the way, was Billy Graham. Billy Graham site. These provide what I would consider to be the very typical Western evangelical answers to the question of salvation. The question of what is the gospel of salvation. Okay? And they were very, in my opinion, very representative, well, certainly very representative of my experience in the Christian world. So one thing that I found very interesting is that the sites, generally speaking, do not address the question of to what. It just doesn't come up. They lay it out as if it's common knowledge, like it doesn't need to be said. Billy Graham's site did address the question in a slightly different way, and that article asked and answered this question, to what purpose are we saved? Which is part of the to what. To what purpose are we saved? And even his site, interestingly, had a now what at the bottom. However, the now what uh, addressed what actions should one take now that they have become a Christian. You know, read your Bible, pray, join a church, etc. And so it didn't really answer the question in the now what as the to what are we saved. One site, uh, this was carm.org, which by the way I was a, for a long time a subscriber. I, I have a lot of respect for this man and so I don't mean to be critical of these presentations. I'm just using them as you know, representative of the way that we typically present this in our Christian culture and the misconceptions that I believe are there. So carm.org gave an indirect answer to our question in the section, count the cost, which was a really interesting section to me, in which he explained that, quote, if you become a Christian, God will take it very seriously. He will work in your heart and in your life to change you and make you more like him. Interesting that that's in count the cost. Are you sure you want to be like God? I mean, that's, that's a very interesting concept. But in essence, he was saying... Once you become saved, then God will try to change your character or in some way make you like God. And he didn't say character, but I think that's implied. He said, he will work in your heart and in your life to change you and make you more like him. Another site, BibleUnderstanding.org, provided a common answer to the question of what is the gospel of salvation? This very clearly articulated from what we are being saved. In their section, why do we need salvation? So they had a section, why do we need salvation? Very clear articulation of the from being saved. Then they provided an answer to how one can become saved, but never addressed the question of to what are we saved? You can find you know, many books, articles, sermons that don't explicitly state an answer to our question, they do imply an answer. So I'm not saying that it, there is no answer. It's just, it's, impl it's an implied answer. And generally, it's to heaven. So there's a lot of implied answers to this, and we can look at some of those. So obviously, heaven. Saved to what? Heaven is the, probably the most common thing, right? So the pro most prominent answer is, is that. And you have been saved from hell to go to heaven. So when witnessing, we often lead with this question, as I mentioned earlier, if you died today, where would you go? And that puts in place this from hell to heaven, and that becomes the conversation. Now, if the issue that salvation is meant to address 
is sin, or more specifically sin guilt, then the natural expectation of the removal of that sin guilt would be what? Well, I would call it a clear conscience, but there's more than that, and we'll come to that. But freedom from guilt, and here's the thing that I find interesting. What's implied in many of the messages that I heard as the gospel message is that one of the benefits of being saved is the removal of guilt feelings. All the bad things that we've done were taken by Jesus, and, and which is true, and we have a good reason to no longer be under condemnation, right? We are no longer under condemnation, but one of the benefits that is at times implied, and not a bad thing, is that we don't carry those guilt feelings around with us any longer. And that's a benefit that we experience today. We might carry remorse, wish we hadn't done that, we're sorry that we did that, but we don't not have to carry the, the guilt feelings. But that sometimes is also implied, if not explicitly stated. However, when you think about a person asking the question, to what am I being saved? They're really thinking in terms of their experience. And their, their, the resolution of guilt saves from condemnations, saves from the wrath of God, saves from, I'm talking about in the general presentation of the gospel, what does it save to? And a clear conscience, the removal of guilt feelings may be one thing, and closely connected to that is peace. Now the Bible talks about the peace, right? Peace of, that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds. You remember that? It's a common theme in the Bible. And, and so this is one of the things that comes out. And one of the reasons that Billy Graham, for example, was so successful as an evangelist is because he understood that everyone who is without God in his life is lacking and seeking peace. Now, if you've listened to, I've listened to several of Billy Graham's evangelical messages. This is a prominent, this, this is prominent messages, and rightfully so. So one of the implied, if not explicit, promises of the typical salvation message is peace. Now, often it's spoken of in the abstract, peace with God. Sometimes it's implied and sometimes explicitly stated is a feeling of peace or an inner peace. Now, these are the most common that I've heard. So here's where we're at. If this is what we're saved to, there's some benefit here. So I'm going to use the term benefit. There is some benefit here. It's not this. Okay? It's not nuclear holocaust, desolation. But most of what we have is something we look forward to. And that's the primary message if two is included at all. And so what that leaves for us is, well, just why don't we hear more about the two of salvation? And there's, is there stuff missing there? You don't have to say what it is, but do you feel like there's something something that should be included that we don't typically hear? I believe we don't discuss, generally speaking, in the basic gospel presentation, the two of salvation other than heaven, might, if you consider forgiveness a two, other than heaven or the removal of guilt, basically. And that, I think that the reason we don't discuss that is because of a misconception of what salvation is all about. 
I believe that it's because of a misconception of the main issue that Jesus came to address. So, Charles Ryrie, I, I have a, this is a Ryrie Bible that I have. I, I like Charles Ryrie, and I, he's a very scholarly man. He wrote a book uh, called Soul Great Salvation, which I ought to be, you know, referencing because that's the title of this portion of my series. Um, and, and the subtitle of that is What It Means to Believe in Jesus Christ. Now, presumably, I, I guess what I've heard and what I've read about that book is that he wrote it in response to John MacArthur on lordship salvation. It's a rebuttal of lordship salvation. But let me quote this to you, page 38. Here's what he writes. Some of the confusion regarding the meaning of the gospel today may arise from failing to clarify the issue involved. Okay, so Ryrie is going to tell us from his perspective the issue involved with the gospel of salvation. The issue is, how can my sins be forgiven? What is it that bars me from heaven? What is it that prevents my having eternal life? Now, by the way, there's an implication right there. I don't know if you caught it. The implication there is a restatement that going to heaven is the same, in essence, eternal life and going to heaven and being forgiven from our sins are because remember, this is one issue. The issue is, and so he's restating the issue, the single issue from various different perspectives or different sides of that issue, but it's an equivalent. All of it is equated. So eternal life is going to heaven, is being forgiven from your sins. What is it that bars me from heaven that prevents my having eternal life? The answer is sin, okay? How can my sins be forgiven? I need some way to resolve that sin problem, and God declares that the death of his son provides forgiveness of my sin. Christ died for our sins, in quotes. That is as plain as it could possibly be. Sinners need a Savior. Christ is the Savior and the only valid one. Through faith I receive him and his forgiveness. Then the sin problem is solved, and I can be fully assured of going to heaven. This is what I mean by a facile idea. Sin is the only issue that needs to be resolved. That's what salvation is. It is a rescue from sin. There's an implied delivery to heaven. There's an implied delivery of whatever eternal life means. But the issue is sin and being rescued from sin because it bars us from these other things. Now, not to pick on Ryrie because, like I say, I, I have a Ryrie Bible. I like a lot of what he has to say. I'm using this as an example of kind of a common approach to the idea of salvation. But I believe it is exactly this view that is concisely expressed in the famous evangelical bumper sticker. Now, I've railed on this bumper sticker for many years. And I knew when I read... Dallas Willard railing on this bumper sticker that we had a kindred, I had a kindred spirit there. What is that bumper sticker? Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. This, this concisely states what Ryrie just told us. Sin, specifically the forgiveness of sin, is the only issue. What it's about. Well, 
And uh, there's a point to it. It's not, it's, it's not entirely inaccurate. Christians certainly are not perfect. Would everybody agree with that? If we took the word just out, maybe most of us would feel a little more comfortable with that bumper sticker. Or in this case, the, the license plate. This bumper sticker, or in this case, the license plate, is the part of our culture that implies so much, so loudly, that we can't help inferring it into everything we read in the Bible. To demonstrate that inference, so let me tell you, let me just make this statement and see how, how, how it lands with you. The meaning of the gospel has little to do with sin, especially with guilt, which is what Ryrie actually means when he talks about sin as the problem. He's actually talking about guilt. How did you say that statement? The gospel has little to do with sin. Wait a minute. Now, kind of the hair on the back of your neck might stand up when you hear somebody say, the gospel has little to do with sin. I didn't say nothing. Has little to do with sin, especially sin guilt. So does it make you wonder what issues it does address? Do you wonder how I could possibly support that claim when I state that? Of course you do, right? But here's the question that I want to, and here's the point that I want to make with this. This, this is our cultural orientation right here. If I say the gospel has little to do with sin, the natural response for you is to say, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense to me. You've got to back that up, etc., etc. But when we hear the only issue is sin, if I weren't preaching the sermon and I said those words that Ryrie said in a different context, we would probably have a hearty amen. And we don't ask, well, wait a minute, where do you get that idea? Where does the Bible say that? Because we could probably produce two or three verses that seem to imply that. So why don't we look at the words of Ryrie and ask how he supports his claim? He doesn't support it, by the way, if you read that book, because he assumes that we all agree with that statement. He doesn't feel like he needs to support it. It's an obvious thing that even John MacArthur will believe, will agree with. And he was refuting some of what John MacArthur was saying. But he didn't need to address that issue because we're all in agreement that the issue that Jesus came to deal with is sin. This is the inference of culture that we find ourselves in. Okay? So at this point, you may be wondering where I'm going with this. I am purposely challenging your inferences to create a tension. And I want you to be aware of them. What I want to do is what happened to me when I was reading Job. Early, early on in my Christian walk, I read Job. And I'm reading this, and I'm reading these Job's friends talking to him, right? And I'm reading them, and I go, that makes sense. And then Job gives some kind of reply, and I'm like, you're just sour grapes, man. I mean, this guy's got, this guy's got some wisdom to share. And, and then I find out that Job had to intercede for these guys. And I couldn't figure out where they'd gotten it wrong. But the experience at the end of Job showed me that I had some 
misconceptions, preconceived notions, some inferences that lined up with these other folks. And so I want to create that same tension for you, and I want to give you an assignment here. If I simply gave you my assertions, articulated my main points, and then provided some support for my point, my concern is that you will only hear what you have always heard when people use those words. Okay? So I'm not going to use those words until you've got this tension and go, well, so what are you going to give? How are you going to resolve that? Okay? So let me give you an assignment. So take a concordance or electronic Bible search and look up the word gospel. Then ask these questions when you read the passage, okay? Read every passage that has the word gospel in it. Ask these four questions for you, okay? Number one, okay, we all know gospel means good news, right? So the question is, what is the good news to which this passage refers? Number two, who is proclaiming the good news? The gospel of Paul is Paul proclaiming the good news. The gospel of Matthew is Matthew proclaiming the good news. There's a gospel of angels. You'll find that when you look it up. Who is proclaiming the good news? Number three, is it their good news? Or are they simply delivering somebody else's good news? Okay? That's a distinction that's important to be made. That's why Paul said, according to my gospel about Jesus Christ, that he was delivering the gospel that Jesus also taught. They'll say the words of the Lord. They were the ones delivering it, but they are passing it on. And then number four, and this is an important one, does this good news apply to me? And for extra credit, you can say, if so, in what way? Do I have to do anything to realize or experience this good news? Are they telling me to do something, in other words? So does this apply to me, is, is the main question. And the point is, if it does apply to you, you know, in what way does it apply to you? Okay, let me just pray. God, I thank you that you have communicated to us, and we can depend upon the Bible. We can depend upon you to be clear in your communication. I pray that you would help us in our hearing. May we have ears to hear. May we, by your Spirit, set aside preconceived notions, misconceptions, those inferences that come from our culture that trip us up. And may your Spirit speak to our hearts as we think about this so that we might know what is so great about your salvation. And I thank you and ask it in the name of Jesus. Thanks for listening in today. Our vision at TRC Ministries is to see individuals fulfill their calling under the authority of the church using the resources of the kingdom of God. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And for more information on TRC Ministries or to contact us, go to www.regenerationcenter.org.